hot with uh, NFTs, uh, stock market, and uh, you know all the other fun things in the world. No, we're just kidding. Uh, we are here on Disrupt TV, and we're going to do some quick introductions with our awesome guests today. We're going to do reverse order. We're going to go to Sarah. We're going to go to Pat, and then we're going to go to Whitney. Uh, tell us where you're calling in from and what you're talking about today. So, Sarah, where are you joining us from? Today? Hey everyone, I am joining you from my apartment in San Francisco, California, and I am here to talk today about my new book, Creative Acts for Curious People. Woohoo! All right, awesome. Pat, where are you calling Hi. in from, and what are we talking about today? Hi everyone, my name is Pat White, I'm CEO of Bitwave. I'm calling in from San Francisco as well. We got the West Coast contingent on the call today, and we're going to be talking all things NFT, DeFi, crypto, digital assets, business, whatever, you know, everything up and down. It's the crazy, the crazy new stuff. All right, and, and we've got Whitney. Well, what are yes. we talking about today? Hello, everyone. I'm Whitney Johnson, and I'm calling in from the Shenandoah Valley in Virginia, in the United States. Although I, I was, I did grow up in San Jose. Does that count as a West Coast contingent? And I'm also here, Sarah. You gave me this great idea to talk about my book called Smart Growth. So super excited to be with you all today. Thank you. Books are out. That is amazing. All right, we'll turn the honors over to L. Where do we go? All right, three, two, one. Hello and welcome. Thank you for joining us on Disrupt TV. My name is Val Afshar. I'm the Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. We welcome you to follow us on Twitter at Disrupt TV Show. Send Ray, myself, our distinguished guest, your questions live using hashtag Disrupt TV. It's my pleasure to introduce my co-host, Ray Wong. He's the CEO and founder of Constellation Research. He is the best-selling author of Everybody Wants to Rule the World, Surviving and Thriving in the World of Digital Giants. Ray is a regular television business and technology contributor on Fox Business, Yahoo Finance, CNBC, and Wall Street Journal. He's also a global sought-after keynote speaker, and in my humble opinion, one of the top futurists to follow on Twitter at RWANG0. Welcome, Ray, to Disrupt TV. Hey, thanks a lot. I'm here with my awesome co-host and co-founder, Bala Ashtar. He's the chief digital evangelist for Salesforce. He's also the author of The Pursuit of Social Business Excellence. Executives around the world pay attention to every one of his inspirational and insightful tweets. And when he's not keynoting or hosting or leading events or working with clients at Salesforce, you can find him speaking on business TV outlets such as Bloomberg and posting insightful analyses of this show on ZDNet. So who do we have here to kick it off today and kicked it <laughs> off before? Ray, this is episode 257. We've interviewed almost 800 amazing people. But when we launched the show in 2016, you and I were very deliberate about who would be our first guest. And the criterion was we had to deeply respect this individual and we wanted to make sure that our audience would benefit most from our first guest. And selfishly, we wanted to kind of launch this show. And so five years later, our first guest ever is now kind enough to join us. And by the way, four books later. So four books busy, later, I think we missed very a few. busy <laughs> guest. Whitney Johnson is the CEO of human capital consultancy Disruption Advisors, an Inc. 5022, so sorry, 2020 fastest growing private company in America. Uh, one of the 50 leading business thinkers in the world, number 14, is named by Thinkers 50. Whitney and her team are experts at helping people grow their people to grow their organizations. Having worked at Fortune 100 companies, been award-winning uh, equity analyst on Wall Street, invested with uh, great late Harvard Clay Christensen, and coached alongside the renowned Marshall Goldsmith, Whitney understands how companies work, how investors think, and how the best coaches coach all of which she brings to her work in coaching CEOs and C-suite executives. 
In fact, uh, Marshall Goldsmith uh, from 16,000 candidates picked Whitney as a top 15 coach. Whitney is an award-winning author of Dream Dare Do, a brilliant book, Disrupt Yourself. Her third book, Build an A-Team. By the way, they're all behind me. <laughs> the books that are standing up. And her new book that we're going to spend uh, time talking about, Smart Growth, How to Grow Your People to Grow Your Companies. Whitney has, wait, listen to this, 1.8 million followers on LinkedIn, where she was selected as a top voice in 2020. And her course on fundamentals of entrepreneurship has been viewed for more than, by more than a million viewers. An amazing follow on Twitter at Johnson Whitney, J-O-H-N-S-O-N-W-H-I-T-N-E-Y. Welcome back, Whitney, to Disrupt TV. Thank you. I think I want to take you and Ray with me wherever I go to introduce. You're both awesome. So it's wonderful to be here. Whitney, I cut your bio to like a third of your achievements. So I apologize. We only have 20 it was, minutes. It was still too long. It was still too long. Make it shorter. So, but hey, no, we, we're so excited to have you here. I mean, you are the global leader talking about personal disruption, disruption in general. Let's start there. Let's set a baseline for everybody listening in who might not have heard you before. Um, talk about what is personal disruption and what that means. Mm, I would be happy to. So personal disruption um, is this idea of you step back from who you are to slingshot into who you want to be. It's originally based on the work by Clayton Christensen. As Vala mentioned, I had co-founded the Disruptive Innovation Fund with Clayton. I had worked mm -hmm. on Wall Street, come across the book, um, The Innovator's Dilemma, and had this big aha, this big insight that disruption wasn't just about products and services and companies and countries. It was also out about people um, that you can disrupt yourself and that if you want to make any meaningful progress um, in your life, in your career, you do need to be occasionally willing to step sideways, backwards, or down in order to slingshot forward. And so that is what the concept of disruption is. And anybody who's listening, if you really analyze your life, you will realize that you have actually disrupted yourself many times, whether in high school or college or first job, second job, first company, second company. So personal disruption, step back from who you are to, to slingshot forward. Whitney, how did you get interested in personal disruption? Uh, certainly you were studying disruptive companies Mm -hmm. and trying to understand how markets are disrupted. But then you deep, took a deep look and applied some of the science in terms of understanding business disruption to personal disruption. How, yeah. How did that happen? It's a great question, Bala. And, you know, I, I have since come to understand that for whatever reason, I have this mini little superpower of I like to take and I'm good at taking business theories and applying them to the individual. And what happened for me specifically here is that I was working on Wall Street. I had discovered this theory of disruption and saw that this is the early 2000s that wireless was disrupting wireline. That's why they were beating my estimates. But then the big aha came for me is I had gone to one of my bosses and said, hey, you know, I've been doing this for about eight years. I'd like to try something new. And he effectively said to me, we like you right where you are. I'd now read the innovator's dilemma. I'd had this kernel of an idea that this theory could also be about people. And so within about a year, I basically disrupted myself. I stepped off the top of my mountain or my S curve and made the decision to become an entrepreneur. So it was really my own lived experience applying this theory or principle to that experience and, and realized then as I started to map my life that there had been several instances throughout my career where I had applied this idea or this theory or framework of disruption to myself personally. 
You know, that's a fundamental piece, right? That S curve that you're talking about, knowing where you are, right? And and I don't know, even being brave enough to step off the S curve. Um, let's go to the S curve and talk a little bit about why that's important and how, how do you know where you are on the S curve? I mean, that that's a pretty hard guess or hard hard judgment call to make. Yeah. So um, while we were investing using the theory of disruption, we were also using the S curve that was popularized by Ian e. Rogers in 1962 to help us figure out how quickly an innovation would be adopted. And as we were investing again, I thought, huh, maybe we can apply this to people. And the more I looked at it, the more I analyzed it, I realized that this was basically this simple visual model for us to think about. Here's what growth looks like. So whenever you start something new, you start disrupt TV. For example, you're at the base of the S. Um, growth is happening, but it doesn't seem to be apparent. And then you move into the steep sleep back or part of the S where things are moving very quickly. So you've got slow at the launch point and you've got fast in the sweet spot. And then you get very good at something and you think to yourself, I know I'm good at this, but I can no longer keep doing it. And that's because your growth has slowed down. So you've got slow and then fast and then slow which is how you grow. Um, and so what you then know is if you know where you are on that curve, um, whether you're in the launch point, the sweet spot or mastery, then you increase your capacity to grow. And, and the reality is, is that growth is our default setting. And so by having this simple model to think about your growth, it then has implications for talent development, for succession planning, for team configuration, et cetera. But it starts by locating and orienting yourself um, where you are on that curve. You know, throughout your books, some of my takeaways is when you remind us to, you know, fight against sense of entitlement, demonstrate generosity, humility, have a beginner's mindset, because it takes courage, grit to disrupt yourself. It's hard. <laughs> and some of these uh, folks that you coach are really successful people. They are CEOs, they're founders of companies. So they come to you and say, Whitney, I feel like I'm stuck. What do you tell them? Like, what do you tell an average person who feels that they're stuck, whether they're successful or not, what they can do in terms of daily habits that yeah. perhaps can get them unstuck? Yeah. Oh, Val, it's such a great question. I, I think, you know, one of the things that's super helpful, and we, we saw this just recently, is working with a, a startup company and administered our S-curve insight tool that allows you um, as an individual to see where you are on the S-curve, then a leader and a manager to plot where each team member of uh, each of your team members is on the S-curve. And one of the things that, hap that happens, Vala, is it gives people a language. So this one company that we were working with, the, the chief marketing officer, and you used to be a chief marketing officer, was able to say, oh, now I understand why I'm feeling so discontented. Like I'm feeling like I need to do something new because I'm at the top of my S curve. I'm very good at what I do. I'm in mastery, but I'm bored and I'm starting to feel like I, I'm dialing it in. And if I don't jump to a new curve or find a way to extend this out, then I'm going to die inside a little bit. So now that she had this framework to articulate the experience that she was having, she had this artifact that she could use to have a conversation with her manager. And in this particular instance, she left this startup to go be the CMO at a DeFi startup. And I know you're gonna talk about DeFi startups in just a minute, but it gives you this, this language and this framework to describe the, the experience that you're having. And when you can describe your experience, then you can start to do something about it. So that's the first place that I have people start is, 
this feeling that you're having that you can no longer do this, this, by the way, is normal. You are in mastery. You're no longer learning. You're no longer enjoying the feel good effects of learning. So either you're going to find a way to push yourself back down in the sweet spot or you're going to jump to a new curve. Awesome. Ray, you're on mute. I really love this quote that you have called growth is learning put into action. And mm -hmm. I think that is really, really powerful. And you talk about these three steps, um, these three phases in that growth and learning journey, um, the launch point, the sweet point and the high end. This is coming from your book, Smart Growth. And, mm -hmm. and I, I just really thought it was interesting for people to understand what those are, because it's, it's a very, I mean, it's a very hard call. Like, how do you know you're at the top of your game? I certainly know when at the launch point, right? Yeah, right. Yeah. I, how do you know when you're top of the game and it's time to hop off? Mm. Okay. So I, a couple of suggestions for people who are wondering, you know, are, am I actually in, in, at the high end of the curve or the, in mastery? So number one, you can start with just basically time and role. So if you've been doing something for several years and nothing has changed, you know, the projects haven't changed, you haven't, you don't have a new boss, you know, no, config, no configuration of the team has changed. That may be a signal that you are in mastery um, at the top of the curve. But what we have found is, is that, you know, if everyone is coming to you to ask you questions and you're not really asking anybody questions. If you find, your, find yourself saying, well, that's not how we do it here, or we've already tried this, or you find yourself feeling a little bit bored, I feel a little bit checked out, a feeling like, I think there's more for me. I, there's more for me to do here on this planet and it's not going to happen here. Those are all signals for you that it's, it's time for you to either find a way to reconfigure what you're doing so that you can push yourself back into the sweet spot, or you do need to go find something to do. So typically it's the feelings that you're having, like the functional job of your work is fine, but there's an emotional sense of, I think there's more. And almost always when people do decide to disrupt themselves and do something new, it's not because the functional job isn't getting done. It's the emotional job of uh, there's more for me out there. There's a fulfillment gap. Yep. Yeah. Great. I love how you said that. Yeah. You know, my, my uh, personal experience as a, as a hiring manager is that when I was surrounded by A players, they're intrinsically motivated to grow, personal growth, career growth, grow the company, the team. Your prior book was uh, all about building an A team. Were some of the lessons from the book, Building the A Team, motivate you to write about smart growth? Can you tie the two books together? Yeah, um, absolutely. Oh, I love that question, Vala. So, so in Build an A-Team and both in Disrupt Yourself, um, so Disrupt Yourself was more about the individual, this mechanism for how you make progress. And Build an A-Team was how you can configure a team. I know I keep using that word of like, you want to have most of your people in the sweet spot, some in the launch point, some in mastery. But one of the things I discovered is that in both of these books, the S curve of learning was kind of the supporting actor. Um, but in fact, whenever we would go into an organization or deliver a keynote or in our coaching, we would find that this S curve was such a simple, simple visual that people immediately got it. It was an immediate language that they could have to describe and talk about the experience that they were having. And so my, my motivation here was to say, all right, 
let's let's really double click on this and let's talk about okay you're at the launch point what is the experience that you're having you're an explorer and then you're a collector and then you go into this sweet spot and you accelerate and then you become a metamorph and then in master you you anchor the new behavior whatever it is you were trying to do and then you become a mountaineer because you need to keep climbing and then looking at the ecosystem and focusing on the individual but then having implications for leaders so it was really this sense of we haven't done this S curve that actually seems to be the, the leading actor on um, service. And so let's talk about that. And, and, and to the idea of smart growth, when you know where you are in your growth, then you increase your capacity to grow. And so that's, that's where the title came from. Can I just have a follow up question? You wrote smart growth during the pandemic. Yes. So the last 20 months, we've yep. all experienced something that we've never experienced in our lifetimes. And now you hear terminology like great resignations. Mm -hmm. uh, there's 11 million open jobs, most ever in, in our, you know, since we've been tracking in, our, in the US. And so many people seems like proactively are disrupting themselves. They're reading your books. And because of this decentralized distributed work environment where the boundaries have been extended to our homes, people seem to have the ability to, to dare dream and do. <laughs> your first book have do you feel that this last 20 months really have uh, accelerated this notion of personal disruption yeah absolutely i think what's happened is that um, if you consider prior to COVID, we were all on an S-curve, whether we liked it or not. And then um, COVID came along and it disrupted every single one of us and put us on the launch point of a new S-curve. And one of the things that we have discovered is that we are far more resilient than we thought we were. We now have this momentum of, oh, I, I building up this muscle of being able to disrupt ourselves. And people said, oh, I know how to do this. And I don't really like the S curve that I was on. I want to do something different. And people have the capacity now to, to make those changes that they want to make. And so I think we're about to go into this tremendous, exciting, thrilling period of post-traumatic stress growth where people are going to say, I want to grow. How do I do it? And, and smart growth is really meant to help people give you this map of what growth looks like so that you can make the progress that you want to now that you've already had that momentum to make that progress. Perfect timing. Let's jump in on that point. Post, yeah, no, let's jump into that point. Post-traumatic stress growth, new, new yeah. term, PTSG, right? Um, and, and that's like, that's when you're talking about when growth and learning are too fast to keep up with, right? We talked about when it's slow, we talked about leaping. Um, what, what does that mean in the middle, right? It's going too fast. Like, can I, can I consume it? I'm overwhelmed. Like, what are those feelings like? And what do people need to do? Yeah, yeah. I, I would say, Ray, actually the too fast is typically at the launch point where you're, it's like it's launch too point. much and you feel like I, I can't do it. And, and so that's why it, it, everything feels slow because you're not growing fast enough to keep up with what you're trying to do. Um, and if you think about biology and carrying capacity, which we won't go into right now, but in, in, in yep. mastery, what's happening is the growth isn't happening fast enough so you can way keep up with it. What I love about the sweet spot, and this is why you want to be in the sweet spot as long as possible, it's this place of optimized tension because now it's, it's, it's going fast, but it's not too fast and it's going slow, but not too slow. And so you're hard, but not too hard, easy, but not too easy. So you're able to keep up um, and so that's why it's so exciting because you've got all of your neurons firing and you're like, okay, this is hard, but I can do this. This is really exhilarating and, and exciting. 
That's amazing. I feel like I experienced smart growth in my career in my 40s. So, you know, I, I you know, this is, I think, lessons that I wish I wish I was reading your books in my 20s and 30s. So. Right. <laughs> we're, we're getting like a, we're getting like a short 20 minute burst right now. So <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. But amazing, amazing book. Highly recommended. You have incredible um, uh, use cases that you reference in these three phases. So, um, again, uh, thank you so much for launching Disrupt TV and being gracious and kind to come back. We always learn so much from you. Thank you, Whitney. Yeah. Oh, thank you yeah. both for having me. Thank you. Whitney Johnson, founder and CEO at Disruption Advisor, taking enterprise corporate strategy and bring it down to the personal individual level so that it's useful. Uh, you can follow her on Twitter at Johnson Whitney. And thank you so much for being on the show. Happy Friday, Whitney. Yeah. Oh, and you know what? I have to just tell you, everybody, if anybody wants to listen to me interviewing you, Vala, or you, Ray, on my podcast, you can do that too, where we where we switch the shoes. So anyway, thanks again for having me. Awesome. You're up, Vala. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much. Cheers. One of the biggest thinkers and just the nicest person. So okay, speaking of big so thinkers, and we're but going to yeah. yeah, we're going to like deep dive and do it in a slow way. We talk about fast and slow, so I can keep up because these are all emerging new technologies and innovation capabilities. Pat White, CEO of Bitwave. Pat's currently co-founder, CEO of Bitwave, the world's first enterprise digital asset platform, bringing cryptocurrencies, tokens, and other digital assets to the world's largest companies. Bitwave helps with accounting taxes, ARPR, secure dApps, and more. Pat was formerly a principal engineer and chief architect at Cisco Spark. Prior to Cisco, Pat was CEO of Sonata, a San Francisco startup that provides enterprise search software to cloud-enabled businesses. He has spent the last decade building software at companies such as Intuit, Microsoft, and a half a dozen other technology companies. You can follow Pat on Twitter at Pat White, P-A-T-W-H-I-T-E. Welcome, Pat, to Disrupt TV. Thanks so much, Vala. Oh man, it's gosh, I hate hearing uh, I hate hearing my credentials read like that. It's just uh, <laughs> I don't know. It's uh, it's uh, but awesome. Thank you so much for having me. This should be this should be really really fun. Thank uh, you, so fun. You've fun. done great work. Yeah. You're, you're a trailblazer. You're doing some great stuff. You're a trailblazer. Yeah. You know, welcome, welcome, and uh, I feel like we've been we talked to you about a few weeks ago uh, in yeah. person, so that's kind of good. You know, but you helped kick off one of the most interesting coverage areas um, where Constellation is going, which is really talking about the metaverse economy. People typically think about the metaverse economy that's happening in the enterprise side, um, and it's like, what's going on there? It seems to be all yeah. consumer. It seems to be like, you know, what does it mean for my business? And we started that conversation. And I thought that was one of the most interesting things. And so let's start there, right? You started a company and it is talking about where we can actually bring some of those things around. Crypto, DeFi, back into the real world, back into settlement, back into what's happening in the back office end. What is Bitwave? Yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks so much uh, for having me. And that was, uh, we'll, we'll talk more about the metaverse. I'm excited to get into that because that was such a fun conversation we all had. Um, so Bitwave is it's the leading digital asset tax and accounting solution and really back office solution. What I what I kind of think about for when I when I wake up in the morning, 
the thing that we spend every second of the day working on, which I think is always important, like to your, your guest last point, like you, you have to have goals, you have to have these, these things you're kind of working on in a mission-driven sort of way, um, is that we spend every waking moment thinking literally about how to bring digital assets to enterprises. And it's, it's very mission-driven because you have a lot of people in the world thinking about how to bring digital assets, you know, crypto, Bitcoin, Ethereum, all of these types of things. Now, you'll hear me use the term digital assets a lot. And that's kind of intentional. We could talk about like the, you know, the marketing side of this because, you know, crypto is crypto, but digital assets yep. are this, this incredibly expansive thing. They cover yes. everything from like, you know, Bitcoin, Ethereum, but through, you know, bonds on the blockchain, NFTs, you know, digital art, you know, the stuff we were, we were talking about, people. It's crazy. So we we say like, look at every business in the next three to five years will have digital assets on their balance sheet, essentially whether they want to or not. Like whether they they go and intentionally start in on 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 projects to bring it onto their balance sheet, or they acquire a company, or they someone just sends them something. Like whatever it is, every business will have digital assets on their balance sheet. And so the question is like, you as a business will either be ready for that, or you you either be ahead of the curve or behind the curve. We're talking a lot about curves on this show today. Um, so you're either ahead of the curve, which is like you're you are ready for digital assets and you're actually getting into it now, or you're going to acquire a company and be in this this oh crap moment where you're trying to catch up on on actually what all is going on here. So Bitwave is we we basically act uh, we we come into businesses. We have a full software solution that will help you go from the blockchain, your exchanges, your custodial systems into your traditional accounting systems, tax processes, and then up from there. I mean, there's all this cool stuff that that hopefully we kind of get into here. But like, there's there's this idea, and I think this I think Ray, this was at the the Constellation conference. Was that someone said that the first uh, the first car the first car that ever came out, someone painted a horse head on. And like the way I think about where we are right now with crypto is like we're kind of like painting the the horse head on crypto where like people are figuring out, well, we're going to we're going to do all the same stuff. It's all everything's totally normal. But instead of you paying me USD in a wire, you're going to send me an Ethereum transaction. And that's kind of where we are right now. But but what's happening is finding all the new ways to use this new technology to enable new business processes. So that's we, we sit up and down the stack between all of those types of things. What an amazing place to be, uh, because as you said, you know, early, early in the game, I'm not even sure if it's the first inning. It may be the national anthem uh, in terms of how early this is. Uh, you know, we had Michael Saylor on the show a few months ago and Michael, who's been, you know, leading the discussion in terms of balance sheets, holding crypto, specifically Bitcoin. I think he's got about 116, 17,000 Bitcoin on the MicroStrategy balance sheet. At the time he spoke to us, there was about maybe 40 public companies that had crypto on their balance sheet, you know, famously like, you know, Square and, and MicroStrategy as examples out of four or 5,000 public companies. So oh, yeah. we're nowhere near, uh, you know, I mean, this is less than 1%. And you just mentioned all companies are going to have crypto yeah. on the oh, balance yeah. sheet, whether it's smart contracts powered by Ethereum or Bitcoin uh, or others, um, you know, you're talking about, I think uh, Ethereum just crossed 500 billion market cap and yep. Bitcoin yep. at 1.1, 1.2. Yep. Over, overall about, market cap around $2.6 trillion. Yeah, overall, I mean, yeah, absolutely. Crazy. Uh, yeah. Uh, when you talk about, and I think there's over 100 coins that are over a hundred uh, over yeah. billion market cap. So what, what is your projection in terms of, when do we see, like I think it was uh, ARK Invest and team under Kathy Wood who said if, if 10% of public companies carry uh, crypto on their balance sheet, you're going to see immediate, like, I don't know, 40% increase in prices mm -hmm. across the board. Yeah. And that was early on at analysis, yeah. I think of January, 2021. What are your thoughts about how, how close are we to when, when, project to me when 10% of public companies have crypto on their balance sheet? 
Five years, ten I'd years, say, two years. Yeah, no, I I think we're uh, at ten percent. We're in like the three the three year kind of range. To be quite honest, everyone loves and I love Kathy on this because everyone loves a good price prediction. Like everyone loves five hundred thousand. She says I know. I, that was my my. I was on a podcast at the beginning of this year, and they were like, "Pat, give us the prediction. Like any prediction you want. Like you know, Bitcoin hundred k by the end of the year. We'll see if I hit it. I don't know. Like sometimes there's a drawdown in December. I might be a little bit off, but. But obviously, this stuff is going. This, that's just this people moving just, to Puerto I, I think Rico. You're be close. So, yeah, moving on the record. That's just people moving to Puerto Rico. Yeah. That's, that's really now, cool. now, what's so interesting that's worth kind of talking about, though. So, uh, Michael Saylor is great. He's done phenomenal things for the industry. I mean, I love what he does in MicroStrategy. But at the end of the day, what's so interesting about him is that he still is fundamentally, it still is a, a fundamental hedge kind of position. Like he's he is of the mindset that he's taking inflationary hedge, and that's why he's bought in. It's, there's there's other pieces there, sure. but what's happening is that that is becoming more and more. Not that it, it's not that it's a minority opinion. People still believe Bitcoin is a great uh, inflationary hedge. It's the minority use case. Is that when when yes. Procter and Gamble gets into Bitcoin, it's not going to be because be because their CFO uh, is taking a stance on on Fed money printing, you know, posture at this point. It'll be because they're picking up new ways of paying their vendors, new ways of of paying up and down their supply chain. So that's what like the next the next thousand companies using crypto are. A, a percent of them will be bringing on their balance sheet for fun. A much larger percent will be doing it because, you know, they are Blizzard. And Blizzard right now, what I like to talk when you, you step back, Blizzard probably is the largest holder of digital assets on their balance sheet in the world right now in some ways because of the actual assets they have in World of Warcraft and like the, the swords and the armor and all that kind of stuff. Yep. You know, when those yep. companies start going and, and NFTizing their assets, that's not, that's not an inflationary hedge. That is part of their business. Uh, Square, when they start doing settlement, especially international settlement, things like that in in uh, digital assets, that's not inflation or hedge. That is that is actually transacting in it. So the next the next thousand companies are not it's not going to be the, the micro strategies of the world that are just looking for like investment. It'll be people that are genuinely finding new use cases around this and 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 honestly making money on it. Like, yeah, well. And even old school and even old school payment companies like buying Pinterest. I mean, think about that. I mean, yep. what, what are the implications of PayPal buying Pinterest, Pat? Uh, it's, well, I, well, like, PayPal, it, PayPal supporting Bitcoin, Ethereum, Litecoin a year ago. I mean, I, I would have thought by now an Amazon or Walmart e-commerce platforms would jump on supporting uh, just 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 to. And, and a big this. part of that is that they it's the biggest issue. And that's also why we start BitWave is it's it's actually a little bit non-trivial to do that. So mm -hmm. when when you actually want to do this, I won't get too deep in the technicalities, but but crypto is essentially this unholy child of of uh, tax implications and accounting implications. And so for businesses to actually get into crypto, you have to sort of solve the that overall solution that everything you do in crypto is a taxable event. And that's not normal in accounting. Like 99% of the stuff you do in accounting, when you're paying people, you're paying invoices, you're getting paid, none of those things are taxable events from a, from a gain loss perspective. In crypto, it's all taxable. So that's what BitWave really does is we basically enable you to do your accounting and your taxes at the exact same time, um, which, which enables businesses to seriously think about the actual use cases that you have around this in the long term. How did you get um, into this, Pat? How did you get into this? It's, it's, you're so far ahead of the rest of the world in terms of thinking about business implication. What, what you know, it's is? it's it's such a good question because so I've been in crypto forever. I'm a, I'm a big fan of crypto. I wish I bought more. I mean, honestly, I was mining it on my we computer back in the day. We, so all we, all, we all sit here because every everyone on this call, I mean, we all heard about crypto 10 years ago. I was ago. on Bloomberg 2017 talking yeah. about, wow, Bitcoin crossed 10,000. What a great. And at that yeah, time, like, oh, I should have reminded if myself. I bought it. <laughs> 
and so like i i had like a little mining rig i kind of liked it um and oh, it was wow. sort of fun but it was mining. it was never part of like i mean i didn't have very much but you know it was sort of i i, I always loved it i love the idea of decentralization i love the idea of cutting out middlemen like that's you know if there's one lesson that you hear over and over yeah. and over between like every every revolution industrial type revolution we have has been about removing like friction in, in systems and so you know crypto is just the next net logical step for that and so for me it always made sense from the very beginning um, I had other jobs and startups and stuff, but I was I was waiting for my background is entirely enterprise software. So, you know, every company I worked for is enterprise software. Every startup I've done has been enterprise focused. I was waiting for those two to come together. And honestly, in like, you know, before 2017, it wasn't really coming together. Like the people no. that were businesses in the space, <laughs> they didn't pay their taxes. They, they were not really businesses in this space. Uh, and then and then big businesses were not really in the space. It was 2018 that we really started to see businesses getting serious. We started seeing real people, VC-backed startups getting into crypto. And we're like, oh, yo, crap. They don't know that they're going to need this stuff right now. Like, They actually don't realize that they're going to need tax, accounting, all this kind of support stuff. So we started building it up. And, and, and it's just been really the pandemic during this time when crypto is just skyrocketed that, that we've been very fortunate to kind of ride that wave along with it. So That's awesome. Yeah. Well, hey, let's right talk use right cases. Time. Yeah, let's oh. talk use cases. Like, what are the top three people are coming to you right now for? Um, because, um, you know, not all the cases, as you're saying, are like reserved assets, which Fong and uh, Mike Siller are doing, right? I mean, that's, yep. that's a whole different kind of thing. Um, I mean, that, that is a hedge. But, but what, what are some things that are popping up that people weren't expecting that you're starting to see a pattern for? Oh my God. Well, let's, let's talk about NFTs. I mean, NFTs are probably like the, I don't, we just, we've signed five customers in the last like two weeks. You were just at the conference, right? In New York as well. Yeah. Yeah. We're just at NFT NYC, which was uh, uh, spectacular. I mean, look at, you know, these conferences are crypto conferences, but like if there's one request I make for the world is like, don't judge crypto in general by the crypto conferences because they're a little bit, they're a little bit like this conference had me walking around in sports coat. Like me, I was walking around sports coat, meeting people from Christie's and like, we were like having serious discussions about this stuff. And next to me is a dude in a gorilla suit, just screaming. Um, I'm, I'm at a talk and it's like, like South by Southwest. It's, mixed it's, it's like all of ago. that together. And then like throw in like some like drugs, like more drugs or something. Um, I'm at one of the talks I was at, honestly, it was so like, it was, it was a panel about, about charity because a huge trend right now in crypto is people in crypto yes. have been like, it all tends to be kind of millennial age people. They've all are incredibly, you know, every, I think everyone is very cognizant of how lucky we were to kind of yeah. get into this space. So charity has become a huge issue in it. So there's a great panel on charity in, in crypto. And a lot of the NFT platforms have charity baked in. They have, they have a one and a half percent. This is, you're talking about interesting use cases. You know, what people do is they do smart contract based charity where there's on their smart contract yes. is codified that one and a half percent. So awesome. every time you interact with it, one and a half percent goes to a company. There's one called Giving Block that just does the management and then feeds it out to the charities. I mean, this is, you know, codifying, you know, our best effort from traditional enterprise for like best effort. We'll do one percent out to, to our to charity to like, no, no, no. There's a smart contract. and You can guarantee that one percent of their of their revenue goes to charity. It's it's amazing. And then so they had this great panel from those guys. And then next, the, the host is like, oh, we got a surprise guest. And then Quentin Tarantino comes out on stage. Wow. And, and everyone in the audience is like, what, what, is that, is that what? Quentin Tarantino? That's awesome. And, That's and awesome. then the, so he starts talking and he's NFTizing. Like his, he has a handwritten Pulp Fiction uh, manuscript. No. And wow. he's telling the story. He's like, so I made Reservoir Dogs. And then I, I, you know, I decided to go spend some time in Amsterdam. And while I'm there, I'm handwriting Pulp Fiction. I'm like, I had this like this vision in my mind of Quentin Tarantino in Amsterdam <laughs> handwriting this. 
Um, did you, did you shred the manuscript too to make it worth more? No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, that's fancy. That's fancy. <laughs> and then all the entire time, there's a guy next to me screaming out, you know, what was in the briefcase? What was in the briefcase? So it's just like, the, it's, it's an incredibly insane world we live in. But all that being said, everything else is like, the money is there. I mean, you know, Beeple just selling a 30 million, another $30 million NFT. You know, Board 8 Yacht, yep. Board 8 Yacht Club was there in force. And it was essentially like the the best way to describe it is is it's sort of like the digital native version of a country club. Like there was a hundred hundred thousand dollar pay in to, to join the board ape yacht club right now, where you have to buy one of these NFTs. But once you're in, they do parties. Playboy hosted them on a yacht. They had a taco truck that they sponsored. I mean, it was just like it's this new way of engaging. And so yeah. you know the business model behind this that's so interesting is that the business model is essentially you create this this smart contract. You create your your um, imaging kind of technology, and then people just go and they interact with the smart contract, uh, kind of without your involvement. So they're just sending crypto to the smart contract. That ends up creating a lot of really interesting problems from a from an accounting standpoint because you're essentially having to recognize revenue on sort of a continuous basis. And we have customers doing you know 60 million transactions a month. I mean that that they have oh to basically God. take and, uh, the That's numbers are are very quickly ever. Yeah. Oh, it's the numbers are very quickly uh, going to dwarf. Like we think of the traditional financial system as like the this is oh you know Visa is doing thirty seven million a year that's amazing like it, it's it's already outpacing that by enormous enormous uh, leaps and bounds here. So and that's sales, that's a great one. NFT sales in first quarter of twenty twenty one one billion in sales. Q three was over eleven billion. So you saw a ten x multiplier in six months. I was following Gary V. At the NFT conference. And, you know, he was his, there, his, yeah. Yeah, his V friends, which he launched a couple of months ago. I mean, his doodles led to, and, and he collected thousands of ETH. I mean, it was just, I was watching. I think he had like 3,000 Ethereum sales of his doodles. But yeah. you could go to a V conference. You can have backstage passes. You can have one-on-one -on -one yep. mentoring sessions with him. So it's cascading set of value-added services tied to the contract. So yep. it's not just owning a piece of his doodles, but it's we're, we're living the V life, man. Living the V life. You're living the V life. Gary, if you're paying attention, that's the V life. All right. That's yeah. The v life. Uh, and, you know, no, anybody, it's incredible. I mean, anybody who's been following him, I mean, he was he had this excitement in 2006 talking about Twitter, Facebook, and the social yeah. revolution. So yeah. he's certainly a pioneer. You were saying it is it is really incredible. I mean, and, and all of that is still it's all that still still sort of tied to cultural. I mean, we have customers that are doing bonds on the blockchain. This is where I get really excited. Like we have customers who literally are issuing bonds onto the blockchain today. You know, I, I talk about this in this this we we in the crypto space talk a lot about financial self-empowerment for individuals. It's a big theme of this is like, you know, banking the unbanked, you know, getting people who would not have access to traditional financial instruments access to them. It goes for businesses too. Like if I, let's say I, you know, I'm a, we're a 20 person company. I call up JP Morgan, like, Hey, you know, Mr. Morgan, I want to, I want to, I want to issue Dyer. a bond. Jamie Dimon. Jamie yeah. Dimon. No, JP. Yeah. Mr. Dylan, I want to issue a bond. He'd be like, ah, oh, Pat. And then, um, so like the, the access, there's actually like, so, but I could go and issue a bond onto the blockchain today and sell it and then service it just like a traditional bond with all the traditional guarantees that, and that's actually the way they implement that is through an NFT. So we're starting to see these other other stuff happening. Like DeFi is the real revolution from the business side. NFTs are fun. It's great to talk about. It's it's kind of crazy. There is a revolution brewing where essentially this this three percent friction tax that the traditional financial services industry puts on on the country writ large 
is essentially going to start moving more and more and more and more to the blockchain. So it'll start with payments. It'll start with like, you know, instead of paying a $30 wire fee, I'm going to pay seven cents of DAI for, uh, you know, on the XDAI network for a quick transfer. It'll start going to lending. Like I, I go and borrow, like I borrowed money or I, I loan money on the blockchain today. It'll get into investments, buying stock, collateralizing CDOs. I mean, you can go and bet on the weather in Timbuktu a month from now uh, on the blockchain today. So all this stuff that like traditionally you had Why to have complex. Again? Yeah, I, I don't, I you know, I... <laughs> And if you're a bank, like you got to be scared, like you got to be super scared about this. Yeah, yeah. Actually, My the most interesting Pat, conversation has, uh... were the banks. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Val. No, go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say the most interesting conversation at our conference was the banks. They had mapped everything out. They knew exactly what was going, and they can't do it. They, yeah. There's nothing, and they know where this market's going. It's, it's like yeah. they they know exactly what's going to happen, and they just can't execute or pull the trigger. It's yeah. so interesting was, having those There was two times in the in the conference when I wanted to jump up on stage and yell, which was one was one was when uh uh one of the one of your analysts said that that they suggested buying uh Shiba. Uh and then the other one was eleven hundred percent growth in October. So just it's one of those it's one of those funny things. Like as a long time crypto guy, you see these like these trendy coins come and go. And yeah. I always tell people don't like invest in like the, the good ones, invest in Bitcoin, yeah. Ethereum, like invest in the, yeah. the foundation layers, like, no Cardano, Solano. Solano. Yeah. 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 Uh, but then the other one was was during the DeFi thing because it was so interesting. It was like they it, they they saw without seeing in some ways. Like not to be not to be too harsh on them, but like it really was like it was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. The whole yeah, the whole <laughs> financial industry, I guess, could just collapse. Yeah. But um, <laughs> and we and we have a team. We'll leave it on that. It. We'll leave it on that. Note. Yeah. We're here with Pat White, CEO of Bitwave. He was early on Twitter as well. You can find him at Pat White. I'm sure all the other Pat Whites are really pissed at you. But hey, congratulations! <laughs> Happy Friday. Look forward to catching up with more conversations with you along the way as we look at the metaverse economy, crypto, and DeFi here on Disrupt TV. So thanks, thanks so a lot for being on the show. Happy Friday. Thank you. Thank you. Thank right. you. What, what a pioneer. I mean, he's. And I think Web 3.0 is going to turbocharge this company. Uh, this whole tokenized, decentralized web. Okay, this is the cleanup hitter spot for you baseball uh, uh, folks, uh, where we just the greatest mind comes and hits a grand slam. And so, for our, for our the, the stakes aren't too high in this conversation now for me, Bala. Thanks so much. I really appreciate that. We have Sarah Stein Greenberg, author of Creative Acts for Curious People: How to Think create and lead in unconventional ways. Our guests actually, you know, remind me of unconventional thinkers and doers. For a decade as executive director, Sarah has helped lead the D School, an interdisciplinary institute at Stanford that nurtures creative thinkers and doers and helps spread the methods of design. In the classroom, Sarah likes to teach at the intersection of design and social impact. Sarah has taught the D School's foundational class, Design Thinking Bootcamp, an experimental course called Design Thinking for Public Policy Innovators and a long-running high-impact entrepreneurial design for extreme affordability, whose students have gone on to design products and services, listen to this, Ray, that have helped over 100 million people worldwide. Wow. wow. Talk about putting a dent in the universe. Um, you can follow Sarah on Twitter at Stein Greenberg, S-T-E-I-N-G-R-E-E-N-B-E-R-G. Welcome, Sarah, to Disrupt TV. Thanks so much for having me. This is going to be a really interesting sort of bookend from where Whitney was talking about growth and personal change. And then we just like had Pat, who is such a, 
you know, amazing example of somebody who is on the leading edge, like surrounding himself with all of these opportunities for growth. And I'm excited to talk a little bit more about creativity and kind of how you get there. That's awesome. No, this is great, man. I mean, I love the D school. I remember like some of the early folks. I mean, when David Kelly was there, when the idea folks were in there, I had a good friend, Shrag Mehta, that was there for something. I mean, it's just crazy. All the amazing alumni from the D school. And of course, all the way it's permeated into almost every aspect of our lives uh, in terms of how people view things from that point of empathy. So why, why did you decide to write the book? I mean, I mean, what, what got you inspired to say, let's go do this. Let's finally put all these ideas and give someone an awesome quick guide. So, yeah, I mean, we, the D school has now been around for about 15 years and I've just seen so many people really transform their own ability to have impact and to think creatively using these methods. And so I, we've been looking for ways for a while to figure out like, how do we actually get that out to more people? And the reality is like, we are actually known for a very, very small subset of what we teach to students. So this mm -hmm. book is an attempt to try to collect like some of the best thinking and best ideas from the D school and, and, and really get it out there. That's awesome. I think it was, this is attributed to Albert Einstein, creativity is intelligence, having fun. Sounds like you had a lot of fun writing this book. And, and can you tell us about what is the takeaway? What's the unique message in your book that you want your readers to walk away with? Yeah. Well, first of all, I love that quote because I am all about like tackling serious problems while having fun. I actually think those two things go hand in hand. Um, so, you know, there's there's a couple of things. One is at the D school, we are, you know, we learn by doing. And that is what I hope people can take away from this book is like, you can read, you can get interesting insight and inspiration, but the process of actually developing your own skills as a creative person, it's all about trying new things and practicing these new behaviors. So all of the activities in here are structured in such a way that if you're on your own, if you're trying to lead a team uh, to be more creative, like there are practices that you can try right away or that you can spend, you know, weeks or months on. Um, but I but I also want to say that I think um, creativity and, and kind of strengthening our own creative abilities has a particularly important role to play at this moment in history, mm -hmm. right? Like who yes. among us in the past 20 months has not been faced almost on a daily basis with trying to solve problems that we weren't trained for, that nobody's <laughs> seen before, there is no manual for. And so like, what do you do when you're faced with those kinds of challenges routinely? Well, you have to, you, you, you can't, especially if you're in a leadership role or in a business context, you can't just get stuck and do nothing. So you have to have a way to address the kind of uncertainty and I actually think that design and creative practice is one of those ways, right? Because in design, what we learn is how to show up at a new problem that we haven't seen before and how to behave as a learner, how to put that learning into action and how to try things, how to test things through prototyping to actually see what the response is. So it is a reliable way to confront problems in times of great uncertainty. And that is really the underlying message of this book is that is that you need a way to act even when things are uncertain and that these kinds of practices can really help you do so. You know what I'm doing in retirement? I'm coming back as a Simpsis major and I'm going to jump into D school. I mean, that's that's really like my retirement plan. Uh, Any, but anytime, you are welcome. <laughs> Come in. I'm, I'm, I'm in Cupertino. I'm in. Um, but but the, the, the beauty of this is, right, I mean, you took some of those exercises. like, And I remember like, you know, like, I mean, you're, you you basically help people figure out how to do talk to strangers. Let's talk, take, let's take one of those exercises. It's it's one of my favorite ones because like you're coming in without any context and you've got to figure out what to do. So, so how does talk to strangers work? 
Yeah, I mean, Talk to Strangers is this amazing assignment that was developed actually by uh, this brilliant woman named Ella, uh, Erica Estrada. Erica, and she, yeah. she noticed she noticed that over time, actually, you know, students are less and less comfortable just approaching strangers or engaging, you know, with the world without some kind of mediation. You know, we're we're now teaching the whole generation of digital natives, right? So, so this is a great example of stretching our our pedagogy and our tools to help people actually interact with with things that could actually provide new insight and new inspiration, right? Like if you're in design or if you're in entrepreneurship and you don't get out of the way that you yourself interacts with the world and you understand and interpret in your own personal experience, you are very likely to be designing only for yourself, right? Mm. So you actually need a way to like let in some strangeness, let in some newness. So how to talk to strangers is like a th you know three part, three missions that you go on. You, you practice literally just walking down the street and smiling at people and see what happens, right? And, well, this and is so hard. Not, it's so <laughs> hard, look right? at you so funny when you do this. <laughs> but you can actually tell, even if someone's wearing a mask, you can tell if they're smiling or not. Yeah, and you yes. and that actually initiates a kind of nonverbal conversation that's yep. quite powerful. Yep. So that's step one. Step two, you go up and you start a conversation about anything, right? So you can use this practice of like triangulating, use any object that's in the environment. You know, it's like, oh, I did, oh, those apples are in season. Like, where did you get those, right? Anything like, oh, how, where did you find that book? That's so interesting. And then the third mission is to actually ask someone for directions and see if they would be willing to give you their phone number so you can text them if you get lost. And, and see, can you actually develop a real rapport that results in somebody being willing to help you a little bit? And I mean, that is a, a nicely scaffolded set of like increasing uh, challenges, right? But it's There's a little about... bit of occupational hazard there. My, my friend did get slapped by someone. <laughs> well, that might, might have had to do perhaps with how your friend made that request. But that's actually a great lesson, right? It's like, what is the social convention there that that person yes. is breaking? And actually maybe that person would have had better luck, like, you know, think like being in a, a pair, right? We have those same yes. issues come up as designers when we're interviewing people, when we're engaging with people. If we're gonna go talk to somebody about a sensitive health topic, right? It actually really helps if like somebody in the in the pair has some real health experience, right? Yeah. So, the, the, but exactly, Ray, what you just said, like those are the experiences we want students to have in a in a kind of safe environment, right? Safer control yeah. yeah. It builds yeah. your muscles and your understanding of how you're going to do this work even better once you're once you're working on and tackling real real projects. So you know how to talk to strangers, which is like one of those necessary preparations to engage with the world in a, in a way where you can like read people, you mm -hmm. can connect with people, and in doing so, you start to actually get insight. It's the very very first step to trying to understand and learn and empathize with where people are coming from, which takes you into this whole area of human centered design. That's amazing. Speaking of developing those muscles, and boy, I could have used this class as an introvert, someone who constantly fighting imposter syndrome. I've, it's difficult for me to speak with strangers, uh, even now, to be honest with you. But, but as an athlete, you, you sometimes hear coaches say you can't teach speed. So do you believe everyone has the ability to learn creativity, um, regardless of their age? You know, I think everybody is fundamentally creative, but a lot of us have been um, kind of had that aspect of us a little bit devalued. And I think that's coming from a couple places. So one is, you know, we just have this persistent myth 
in in our society. And you'll hear David Kelly talk about this a lot, where you know people who can't think they can't draw also think they're not creative, right? We've had this tight coupling between the visual arts and people's sense of themselves as creative people. So one thing we is like we got to get rid of that myth. And actually at the D school, you know, as you know, we have students from the med school and all parts of engineering and business and law and education. They're all taking classes together because each of those areas, I mean, as we just heard in terms of digital finance, like that we we know that creativity is necessary in all different sectors, right? So um that that myth I think is is really something that we need to knock down. Um, but the other thing is that like this kind of work is not is not just as simple as like sitting around and just thinking great thoughts, right? There actually are these quite rigorous practices. And and for some of us, like if we're an introvert, you know, like you actually need to build some skill and muscle. Um, one of those areas that we see really important for people to, to understand and to develop in is around like, okay, you've got an idea, you think it's good, but does anybody else think it's good? How do you actually build a prototype really rapidly and in what medium to be able to express that idea, to give it form, and to then be able to have other people experience it so they can give you feedback, right? Most people are not, you know, unless you're coming from an engineering background, like that is that is a pretty strange concept to many people. And so that's another whole, you know, set of practices in the book. So like one of my favorites, for example, is an exercise called first date, worst date that my colleague Carissa Carter created. You literally have people build a representation of their worst first date out of Legos, right? And then you share, right? And people do it in all different ways. You hear some really interesting stories. But the cool thing about that is it's it's like the first time somebody might have been asked to build a physical representation of an abstract experience. And that underlying skill is going to serve them well the next time they're going to say like, okay, how do I test this concept that I have about financial services or about how I, I might improve that the healthcare experience in my in my doctor's waiting room, right? So there are all of these possible futures that we can design, but we often need ways to make them concrete and then to be able to get into a good dialogue with someone else about them. That's amazing. That's you know, amazing. Bala, I don't want to wait till next year to invite Sarah to come speak at our conference. We're going to have to do something earlier. You know, it's funny you say that. I was thinking, how did I take the course? I didn't take the course. I know, I want to take this course. The first thing you could do. But I, I do definitely want to take the course. Yeah, totally. I mean, and I'll, I'll say like one of the one of the things I was trying to do in the book is like, you know, all of these learning experiences, they are quite emotional, right? Mm -hmm. Because like you are either overcoming a fear or you, you're like reaching a new height. And that is what I tried to do in this book is like really bring that aspect of it to life. It, and the, the, you know, the fun, the playfulness is in there, but also like the, the struggle that can, that can come from being part of it. Um, but no, no, and that's also a great team building and bonding moment as well as you get your teams up and running as well. So it, it seems very powerful. We have an ambient experience summit, which we try to think about. We've been creative customer experience, customer face front facing kind of uh, executives together. So it's something like that, but you're also a product of the D school. So let's talk a little bit about that. Like how, how do you, I mean, you took some of the earliest classes there, what inspired you to do that? And, and now, I mean, you're, you're basically like putting this into action for millions of people. Yeah, I mean, I was, I cannot say how lucky I was that I happened to be at the business school as a grad student when the D school was getting started. So I took some of those early classes and, 
you know, just it, it was clear that everybody there was in a highly experimental mode, right? There was this amazing group of faculty who came together to found the D School, you know, with with David Kelly. And, um, you know, like it was the first time a lot of them were in the in the classroom together. You could as a student, you could see them like disagreeing and trying to figure out, like, how are we going to how are we going to actually teach these these skills and these concepts? And I think I think that was I mean, obviously, it was a really pivotal moment in my life. Um, and I had those first you know, early experiences of designing something that using these approaches actually was useful to people. Right. So one of my first projects was around designing um, and actually taking a bunch of the cost out of a product that was for um, uh, small plot farmers in Myanmar, working really closely with this amazing organization called Proximity Designs around uh, um, irrigating their fields, around pumping water. Right. So like I didn't have a I didn't have an agricultural background, but through these these methods, we were able to actually design something that, you know, six months later, our partner was already testing and, and had started manufacturing. So I, I got I, I early on, like saw the efficacy of, of working in this way. And I think just for me personally, like I love being at intersections. Like I love that kind of crazy overlap when you've got people who are trying to, you know, speak each other's languages, but there's like lots of room for creative misinterpretation. Um, you know, those kinds of open-ended, ambiguous kinds of challenges and environments, they really, they really appeal to me for some reason. That's awesome. That's awesome. I That's think it amazing. was Seth Godin I mean, who said Arm tech uh, in action. So yeah, absolutely. I think it was Seth Godin who said, you know, people are not afraid of failure. They're afraid of blame. So I feel that uh, you need to have courage uh, in order to, to, to practice creativity. Uh, I'm a first generation immigrant refugee. So I already had the most disruptive thing that can happen to anyone, in my opinion, early on in my life. So I think it built a certain amount of grit and, and, uh, and, and, and uh, resiliency in me. So throughout my career, I did some unconventional things. Uh, where I think, you know, the courage for my family and the experience led to me not worrying about blame uh, if I felt it was the right thing to do and, uh, and I would do it. Um, now, my kids uh, grew up in the U.S., great life, uh, knock on wood. Um, so I often think about, you know, um, you know they didn't go through a, a challenging period in their life. So, you know, will they have the resiliency? Will they have the grit to practice creativity uh, even if it means going to uncharted territories where they're trailblazers, how do you help? How, how do you advise business leaders to cultivate a creative culture by not blaming failures, but also individuals who may be timid in terms of really reaching their full creative potential? Yeah, I mean, you're naming some really important um, aspects of creative work, but also about the culture that leaders need to build yeah. within organizations. And you know, I think at the heart of this is is what we were kind of talking about a little bit before, which is about you know how do you work with the uncertainty and the ambiguity that is around you? And you can kind of say like, wow, I can't I can't tolerate it. I gotta I gotta get out of this uncertainty and ambiguity as quickly as possible. Or I see that when we when something is ambiguous, like a, a you know fast emerging technology or or a new industry that's that's getting going, you know that's actually a moment. Where if we stay in the ambiguity a little bit longer, we might actually notice the really important and the really powerful opportunity that's there. And I think that design, because it is a way of structuring a response to ambiguity 
through prototyping, through being able to be divergent and explore multiple directions at once. And it has that vocabulary where you can name, no, 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 we're deliberately preserving our options right now. And now actually we're, because of the user feedback that we've gotten, we're in a convergence mode, right? We're actually gonna move something you know, to market. That, that helps a team become more confident about what are the implications of being in that ambiguous space. And the, the last thing I'll just say is that, you know, once you get a handle on how you personally relate to ambiguity and also how you then can apply, what are the right creative skills to use at that moment to kind of get to the next step, then you start to, you actually start to want it, right? Because you know, if you're in, ambig in like an ambiguous problem space, you're next to a breakthrough. Right. And if you're not, actually, you're probably in pretty conventional territory. But that takes some of the personal work that you're alluding to, particularly if you have not experienced in your life what that what that means to navigate that that kind of uncertainty. Um, and I, I, I think that that is part of the, the culture that leaders need to build. How do we hold this ambiguity? How do we invite ambiguity in when that's right for, for where we are in terms of our, our Sarah, grand slam. The way you like tied the narrative from Whitney and Pat and really she brought it, it all home. together. Oh my God. Unbelievable. You're awesome. Thanks. I, I'm a synthesizer. I like those intersections. I love. I, I have so one cool. last question for you. So I mean, you're working with the greats, David Kelly, you're among Grace Hawthorne, you're amongst Alita Hayes, uh, Frederic, I mean, and a whole bunch of other folks. What's it like when they all get together? <laughs> it's so fun. It's so fun. We just, we have so much fun in our culture, right? Cause like, and really we're pushing it, right? You know, Alita is an incredible choreographer and dancer, right? She gets our students to think about movement and improvisation and how that relates to creative yeah. work, right? Frederick's in the classroom. He's talking about, you know, be, like a, as the innovation evangelist at Google, right? So it's like, we're bringing together these incredibly disparate disciplines. And again, like that's where all the interesting work happens. It's where the interesting new ideas happen. And, and we're, we're getting students confident about how do you operate? How do you move amongst all those different, all those different disciplinary cultures? Amazing. This is wonderful. Thank you for this moment in time. We're Sarah Stein Greenberg, author of Creative Acts, um, for curious people, how to think, create, and lead in unconventional ways. You can follow her on Twitter at Stein Greenberg. Awesome book. Check out the exercises. Get the audible version as well. It is amazing. So thanks a lot for being here. Happy Friday. Thanks, thanks everybody. Really thanks nice to see you both. Thanks. We'll see you in the green room if you're still around. So take care. <laughs> that was that was a ridiculous hour of grand slam wisdom. home run all the way from the beginning to end. Oh my god! They all tied together. I mean, from the S curve learning and 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 deliberate disruption, personal disruption, to Pat who went from Cisco to an area that's so new, so early, bringing all these concepts back to the enterprise through governance and taxation and so on and so forth, and then Sarah just really linking all of this together in terms of the power and the importance of creativity. Um, <laughs> I know what I'm doing this rock weekend. Star, I'm just rewatching the show. I'm rewatching the show. So, We're a rock star episode. I wish we could just watch the show. It'd be more fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, right, right. I don't want to think about the next question. I just want to deeply listen but hey, to the answer. We've got an, we've got an awesome um, set of lineup for episode 258. Who do we have? We have Dory Clark, another Thinker's 50 brilliant mind, professor at Duke University, uh, Fuqua School of Business and Wall Street Journal, best-selling author of The Long Game, 
the book is behind me, Yellow Cover Long Game. So we're going to talk about how you can deliberately build a forward-looking plan for success. We have Joel Smith, Chief Experience Officer of First Advantage. And we're going to talk about the experience being as important as the product and service your company provides. And Liz Wiseman, another Thinkers 50, author of Impact Players, How to Take the Lead, Play Bigger, and Multiply Your Impact. Ray, we can't have multiple Thinkers 50 on one episode. My brain cannot <laughs> handle it. <laughs> This is oh. L, our producer. Don't do this to me. Right now, I'm fried. <laughs> We're fried for the rest of the day. Now, this is yeah. awesome. So, but hey, thanks everyone for joining. If it's Friday, it's Disrupt TV, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern, every Friday. Thank you so much for listening. And of course, please share, 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 and share your ideas for our next set of speakers as we start booking into February and March 2022. So, thanks a lot for making this one of the top enterprise. Um, enterprise tech podcasts and really about what's happening in the culture and social world of enterprise. So thanks a lot, everybody. Happy Friday. Bye, everyone.